Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the podcast where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry. I am a writer here in Los Angeles. My name is Zita Sean. I'm a stand-up comedian and writer. And I'm Lynn Sternberger, a TV writer as well. Today we'll be discussing the fourth episode of the third season, Full Faith and Credit, written by Ted Mann and directed by Ed Bianchi. This is like his like 10th episode or something. This guy's always directing. They're both all over it. Ted yep. Mann wrote a bunch of episodes this season. Yep. This first aired July 2nd, 2006. Alma opens Deadwood's first bank. Hearst meets with Swearingen and Tolliver and lays out his plans to consolidate his power. As he and Martha deal with painful memories of William's death, Bullock brokers a deal between Steve and Hostetler when Hostetler and Samuel Fields arrive back at the camp. They came back. They brought the horse back. Just to get Jane in the episode, I think, they <laughs> send a telegraph. Oh, and to get Blazanov, they send a telegraph to Jane from Samuel Fields. She doesn't remember that that's actually the general's name that says he's going to bring the horse back. And then they're there. And it puts Stephen to a tizzy. Oh, my Lord. The tirades, the racist tirades that you have to sit through in this episode are really a lot. He's given a lot of time to air his point of view, which I find repugnant. And I was wondering why we got to hear so much of it. Yeah. It's a choice. It's a choice. And I think this is something that I ask myself on a broader scale with a lot of historical projects. Just like... Why do some writers feel the need to put so much of the most repugnant things into it when it's like we've we already get it? Like none of this is new information and it's very unpleasant to sit through. And I know that they need something to sort of heighten the tension and set Hostetler off to when he starts giving it back to them, which, of course, is is an interesting moment when he loses his cool. But I just Mm -hmm. don't see why it was necessary either. I totally agree. And it's really uncomfortable because Steve gets away with it in so to such a degree that basically he's getting what he wants. He's getting alone. He's saying this evil shit to Hostetler's face. And then Hostetler starts talking back. And Bullock, an upstanding man who we think of as kind of not particularly racist, I mean, especially after he honored the American Indian that he killed, mm-hmm. picks up. Hostetler by the pants and throws him out of the business that they're in. It was like, okay, well, this whole town is fucked. Right. And I think from Seth's point of view, it's kind of like he's just trying to keep everybody calm and separate. But it's like he was holding Steve back, but he was letting him go on that tirade. Like, yes, he punches him in the face at one point, but he only punches him in the face when he gets really insolent and annoying to Seth. Mm -hmm not to other Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that moment really bothered me as well because I was like, if any of these characters are going to like pull a gun or something, Hostetler's not the one I'm worried about. So why is he the one who has to leave the bar? You know what I just realized I really, really want is for Mama Lou to like poison Steve. Yes. It's Aunt Lou. (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? Yeah, it was the best pie he ever had in his life and then died immediately after. pie? There's a lot of people who could stand to be poisoned with the cobbler. I love a female poisoner, right? Like the woman's weapon of choice. Yeah. That's a really, I, I, I think about this question too. Like why, why sort of not really 
it's, it's almost like luxuriate in the racism of the time a mm-hmm. little bit, kind of indulging, indulging this point of view. And uh, the only reason I can think uh, of for it in this particular episode is maybe to give Seth uh, enough traction to act in a certain way. That's the only thing I can really think of. Um, because Seth is so frustrated um, by Steve and by um, his actions. And if anything, it's like, <laughs> this is a terrible, terrible way to put it. But it's almost like, hey, racism is really terrible for Black people. But look how bad it is for Seth. <laughs> because <laughs> oh, my God. Be, <laughs> because he has to, like, yeah. be the go, go between in this interaction, which is kind of like the point of view I got from this episode. <laughs> the sad part is that that's like the charitable way to interpret it the way I mean I think I'm being not so charitable and I am looking at this from like 13 years later when we've had a lot more conversations about this kind of thing but like sometimes you watch shit like this and you're like these white men who wrote directed acted this are just having way too much fun saying the things that they're quote not allowed to say in real life it's very Tarantino you know, I think yeah. I think I I yeah. think I invoked yeah. Tarantino when we first talked about this storyline last season. But I really feel like he's poisoned the well for a lot of white male writers. And they just are like, well, but it's accurate. What I really would have really would have liked is a scene with literally any one of these characters of color in Deadwood written by a writer of color. Mm-hmm. That would have blown my mind. I bet interesting things would have come of it. Well, in slightly more appealing storylines, are there any appealing storylines in this episode? It's not a bad episode, but I feel like there's... There's fun stuff. There's the bank. There's the bank. The bank is fun. The bank opens. Um, Mrs. Ellsworth opens the bank, and then um, Ellsworth visits her, and we left them kind of hot on this fight, and then they seem to be mending their relationship he says he's feeling like a schoolboy and they flirt a little over this apple that he brings to her. And then he defends Trixie when she's faced with a difficult customer and Alma, I think, is impressed by that. He goes a little overboard, but it's it's cute. I again found myself wondering if they were boning. And I and I and I think maybe yes. Is We've answer. poisoned you yes. on this. Now you're just thinking about them boning all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Would they bone about this? Would they would they not bone? It's it's the ongoing question. Somebody I didn't ever want to see bone was Con Stapleton. Oh no! Oh my god! Oh god! That was so gross. Why did we do this? What was the point of this? What was the point of this? Because Claudia, whose name I had to look up on IMDb, I don't even know if we ever hear it out loud in the fucking episodes. What is she doing? It's like she's trying to like make Jacqueline Grish jealous, but. Haven't we established that he doesn't really go for women anyway? Is she just bored? If you're bored, there's got to be a better option than Con Stapleton. Like, oh my God. I don't Even know, in Deadwood, there's a better option than Con Stapleton. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely list some better options. Like, go down to the number 10 and hit on Harry. He's kind of cute. At least he's lovable. Is he the one who wants to be a fireman? Yes. <laughs> he's super cute. I agree. Yeah, Con is boning an actress he teaches her how to gamble and i'm like for sure she would know how to gamble at this point she travels everywhere but she's like doing this like oh can i blow on your dice then she's full of self-loathing is what it looked like after they actually seal the deal at the hotel owned by hearst 
Well, is she playing some kind of long game? Is there a scam that's going to come into this? Or did she literally just fuck Con Stapleton for no reason? I think they're just meeting a sex quota in the episode. Oh, God. I don't in know. Long Johns. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a we were back at our backstory blowjob hour. Um, oh. And we get the, all this stuff about his mom, the prostitute, who left him to suck dick in Georgia. Really, really wasn't a fan of this one. The only redeeming thing is Dolly interjecting twice to sort of agree that she also doesn't like it when she's held down, mm-hmm. when she's restrained, and Al yes. almost mm-hmm. kind of getting it by the end. Almost. Yeah. I, I. It was interesting. He lets her talk, but that's the thing. Let's her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she also seems to have a bit of Stockholm Syndrome because he is bossing her around about who she's going to vote for. He's, like, coaching her. She doesn't even get to vote, does she? I mean, she's yeah, just... Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused why Dolly gets to vote. I don't think she but... does. I don't know why they're talking about this. I, I I would not assume that any women would get to vote. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's just that he's having her disseminate his opinion to all the guys she's banging. Maybe. I don't know. It's a but grassroots she, camp. But she clearly... <laughs> she says, like, she doesn't like... Seth because he's mean to Al. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is gross. He's not a good employer, Dolly. <laughs> I don't think she even, it's not like she's getting extra pay for these backroom blowjobs any either. I think it's just like part of the room and board, which is just gross. The thing I disliked about the storyline was how much time it took. It was like at the beginning of the episode, then it was in the middle of the episode. He discussed it with Jack Langrish too. He discussed Dolly's technique. Right. And then Jack was like, a different hour. And then the conclusion of the episode is when, when Al kind of recounts his child abuse to to Dolly. And I was like, okay, so if I am writing this particular runner, the the unsatisfied the, this dissatisfied blowjob customer runner. If I'm trying to work this out, it kind of seems like this blowjob is about the fact that Al is unsettled in his psyche about <laughs> Hearst. He's yes. unable to get satisfaction until yes. he deals with his real problem, Hearst, which they also did in Sex in the City. Do you remember when Samantha couldn't have an orgasm because she was actually <laughs> sad about Miranda's mom dying? <laughs> I don't think this is like a particularly fresh and new metaphor. Like their real impotence can't get it up versus like impotence in your real life, not able to act like they're like, it's like they think it's so deep. I'm like, this dudes have been relating things to their penis since we evolved penises. (laughs) This is not new. But that's what I came up with. And I was like, this is tired. (laughs) Tired is a good word for it. Elsewhere. Langerish approaches Joni about buying or renting the Shami, and Joni uh, goes to consult Charlie about what she should do. Now, I like this because it seems like she makes clear what her priorities are, and then Charlie says, you're, like, you're totally capable of putting forward uh, what you want, mm. and then she does it. And she, well, I guess she's used to making deals a little bit more than Alma is, per se, but, like, she asks for Langrish to build a schoolhouse so that the children won't be displaced. I feel like this was maybe finally a little bit of a breakthrough moment for Joni on this episode 
because when she's talking to Charlie, she is able to articulate her feelings in a way that I don't feel like we've heard so far, which is essentially boils down to she's been purposefully removing herself from the situation whenever she might interact with the kids mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she just doesn't feel worthy and she feels like she would love to be a caretaker, maybe even be a mom someday. That's me extrapolating a little bit from what she says, but she just would love to be involved in that way, but she feels like she never can get over what she did in the past. She'll never be good enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's actually like articulated that that's why she's been so self-loathing. It really is almost like it, this is what specifically what I'm losing out on because of things I did in the past versus just general melancholy. And then she kind of does something about it, actually takes a step. I don't know if I felt like it was about mothering or motherhood, but maybe caretaking and like, you know, the whole you have to be wearing your own safety mask before you like put the one on the kid in the airplane, (laughs) the, the oxygen mask. I feel like she's like putting on her own oxygen mask so that she can be of use to somebody else. Yeah, maybe not specifically mothering, but like family caretaking, because by the end of the episode, she's also saying to Jane, you're welcome. And please do come with me to the next place we go. And you get a sense of them forming a a little more of a cohesive unit. Sob. (laughs) Why did this? Why was this so big in my head in the past? I sincerely thought that this like friendship moment with Jane and Joni had happened like the third or fourth time they ever interacted. (laughs) Like I've been waiting for it for so long. That is a really good point, Brandy. I was thinking about like what you were saying about uh, Joni being a caretaker. And one of the things that Joni does is that when she was running the Chez Ami, she was taking care of the girls that she moved from size house to her house and of course what happened at the shammy was like beyond horrendous mm-hmm. and then when uh, when Sai is injured and she goes back to the Bella Union to take care of those girls I mean in some ways Joni has always served as a caretaker but maybe she's feeling like she's done a terrible job of it yeah in the last few times that yeah, it's happened there's something to that I think yeah. I mean and also she's never taken care of something that you, I think she would think of as pure. Mm-hmm. Like, like the little you know. ones. The little ones. I mean, we've, we've talked before about how this is a recurring theme, particularly for the female characters in this show, of how they relate to expectations or opportunities to be a caretaker. In many shows, I would be very irritated that that's the <laughs> recurring theme for female characters, but here they show it from so many different angles that... I I like this as an addition to the bigger commentary on like where a woman is even allowed to find satisfaction in life in this era. Mm -hmm. True, too true. So maybe soon Martha will be teaching in a spanking new schoolhouse. If I'm going to say that I like the way that Joni was treated in this episode, I'm going to say I think it's absolutely ridiculous that Martha has like two lines on the episode where the horse comes back. Yeah, Yeah. that was painful. After on the last episode, she literally had one line, which was asking everyone if they want strawberries for dessert. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, she was feeding people in the kitchen. And now this, and I'm just like, really, like other people talk about her way more than she even gets to actually be on screen and express her own feelings about the fact that these men and the horse are back in town. It was a really weird choice to me. She worked those two lines. They were great. They were beautiful. Oh, that yeah. she wants to, like, spare the horse's life. I was like, a, you know, that's definitely a single-tier moment for sure. Like, <laughs> good job, Anna Gunn, ringing all you could off the ten words they gave you in the script. 
Do we have nominations for most feminist and least feminist moments? I think, uh, Brandy, you already said that Dolly got her two cents in about uh, how to behave with women and holding them down and stuff. I think that's what passes for a feminist moment for poor Dolly, unfortunately. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, mine is uh, most feminist is Trixie acting as the world's bitchiest bank teller. <laughs> Every line she has yeah. in that scene is golden. That, that was mine, too. Yeah, I really like <laughs> Trixie and Mrs. Ellsworth as the boss bank bitches. Like... That oh is a God, duo yeah. that I enjoy. And then when she has to like help Seth with the contract for the livery and she's being nice to his face and then just walks away and is like, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> she's never going to like that guy ever. <laughs> Thank God somebody has to not like Seth. <laughs> like when your your boyfriend's best friend is a loser. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, do we have any favorite quotes? I really liked it came early. It was like Hearst was being all awkward and, and like waving good morning to people in the thoroughfare. And Dan, Al just turns and leaves. And then Dan and Johnny were standing there like, what's he doing? And um, like Johnny waves back and then Hearst goes like morning. And then Dan goes morning. Best time of day to go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Which later the captain warns him that it, uh, yes. You shouldn't be talking like that to Mr. Hurst, but I don't think Dan's going to ask. Another great Dan moment was at the end when Al says to him that he thinks the doc is a lunger, a.k.a. that he has tuberculosis. And Dan's like, what does he say? It's like, it's just one fucking thing after another. Yeah. (laughs) Dan had great, great lines this episode. Yeah. He had another cute scene where he was talking about his hurt feelings too, which I just, I like that he could get that out in the open so easily now. You hurt my feelings and it wasn't okay. Yeah. Because Al chose, uh, Adam, what's his face? (laughs) Silas. Yeah. To deal with Hurst and Sai from here on out. I like that he kind of removed himself from that stupidity. Dan, do you really think that you're the best man for that job? Seriously. Yeah, no. No. You're a cutthroat, Dan. I also like Tom Nuttall convincing Harry to build a fire wagon instead of this convoluted plan. He had to become sheriff and then force people to start a fire brigade. (laughs) And then at the end, he's like, and we'll lead two fucking fire hats. I think this bank is a really good thing. Like everybody can take a loan and, and the businesses can grow. We can get a fire engine. We can get the livery all squared off, et cetera, et cetera. Opportunities are endless now that the trappings of capitalism are forcing their way into Deadwood. <laughs> this one really, I felt like it was foreshadowing the whole thing with the fire thing. I didn't Deadwood catch fire the actual historical town. I think it does burn down at some point, like it did in history, but I don't know that we get there in this. No, I don't think we do. But most things have burned down at some point, right? I have a question with regards to your favorite topic of Adams, oh. which is he's apparently been off looking for Hawkeye somewhere and Al told him not to. And there's this whole conversation about Hawkeye. Did I miss something? Did something go on with that man? <laughs> like This came out of nowhere for me. I honestly tune it out. I don't remember. The only thing I remember out of that scene was I was like, oh, his beard's grown. Looking long. <laughs> I feel like sometimes when these characters come on, like Silas or Sai, I just hear the Peanuts grown-up voices. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's almost like uh, Hawkeye did something that Al really didn't like, and then Al was rebuking 
him for for something. I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't really figure out that conversation. It was like Hawkeye's. It was almost like a parental conversation. Like Hawkeye's a bad influence on you. You stay away from him. Totally. It it totally was that Sita, but I was just like, have we even seen that guy this season? Like when he is around, he doesn't speak much. I just was wondering if there was a specific terrible incident where Hawkeye did something that Al didn't approve of that I'm totally forgetting. But I guess not. Randy, if you don't know, I don't think anybody knows. Or it was a scene that got cut in an earlier episode <laughs> and then they had already filmed this and they still yeah. had the intro I mean, maybe. And they were like, ah, just go with it. We, we talk about lots of shit that happens off screen. So just call it a day. But I do think it's good that Al is removing himself from this situation. I can't even barely believe that he even went over to have that conversation with Hurst and Sai. And then Sai's acting like he and Al are like, yep. you know, have this buddy-buddy history. Oh, just go with it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, who are you to tell Al what to do? I was glad he stood up for himself a little bit in that conversation yeah. as much as he felt that he could, I guess. Yeah. Um, what do we think that Hurst is actually proposing? Because he says he's going to, like, leave town sometimes. It's very weird. He just wants the election. I don't even That's know. It. Like, he, he, like, somehow wants to know that they're... That these two are still going to be looking over his interests when he decides to leave town because now he can't trust himself not to be murdering and raping people, I guess. (laughs) And it's just very weird because, like, why would you think that Al is not going to go for regrouping in his own power when you leave town? Why would he be thinking about you that way? It's odd. I watched the conversation a few times and I was just like... I don't know. I'm going to have to see where this goes in the next episode because a lot of times yeah. the, these things are not clarified until the next episode. Well, let's stay tuned, I guess. We may be releasing these episodes more rapidly now in the lead up to the drop of the movie. We're going to try to release, I think, two episodes a week. Is that right, ladies? Yeah, we're going to try to get it all in before the movie airs. Maybe. We're going to do our best. Do our damnedest. And you cocksuckers better appreciate it. All 12 of you listening to this feminist recap of Deadwood. It's like like 30 at least people out there listening to this. We appreciate you. No, no, we we do. And it's been such a fun endeavor, so... All right. Well, until next week, next episode, um, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. I am at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Wee Brandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>